Hey, everybody. Welcome to True Crime Paranormal with the Psychic Sisters. I'm Christy Brower here with my co-host, sister and partner in crime, Katie Weaver. Hey, Katie. Hello. How's it going? Oh, so good. The sun is so bright and beautiful today. We just took a drive to get out in it and get some sunshine. And yeah, the sun is back. Yeah, we only for a couple days, but we've got it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah it's coming right off my house uh <laughs> so the pigs really? have a new favorite pastime because there's oh, yeah. huge sheets of ice coming off my house oh and so they are grabbing pieces of ice and i don't mean little pieces of ice i mean easily the size of a brick or more and <laughs> crunching on them outside which is fine in the summertime i throw them ice cubes and they love it but so they've discovered but they keep bringing bricks of ice in the house Oh, geez. Because they have a doggy door, you know, that they can come and go from the backyard. Well, they keep running in the house and dropping some enormous brick of ice and then just going and going to bed. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Someone's going to get killed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a huge puddle of ice. So and it might be you. Yeah. It, yeah stepping on likely, that ice. Likely me. So, yeah, I'm keeping a really close eye on uh, what those two are doing. But anyway, at least they're entertaining themselves somehow, right? <laughs> well, it, it yes, it's better than other things they have been known to do. This is Where true. we live, we get the least amount of sunlight mm-hmm. um, as kind of anybody else in the U.S. Yeah. We're at a or- weird angle, so we don't get enough. Plus, we have so many gray days in the winter. We're so, not yeah. saying we have vampires here, but maybe we have vampires here. I mean, you all thought it was forks, right? you know, but it's not. It's it's East, East Eastern Idaho, man. It yeah. is no, pretty much. Maybe we should do a vampire show. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm down for some vampire hunting. I have some thoughts. Hell yeah, I have some thoughts. Yeah, I do as well. Yeah. Well, speaking of mm, well known and creepy, mm-hmm. we are going to do uh, the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez. Today, we've had mm-hmm. several requests to do this case, and as you know, a very well done and very. Um, horrifying uh mm. documentary just dropped on netflix a couple of weeks ago yeah on richard ramirez it was really graphic but oh, really yeah. good i mean this is a crazy story from beginning to end richard ramirez did not have a chance in hell of not mm. being a serial killer right wouldn't you say well <sighs> I mean, I know plenty of people are exposed to bad shit when they're kids that don't turn out to be serial killers, but they sure raised the bar on this one. His my family, gosh, didn't they? oh my word, it's just unbelievable. The, the people is. they were, the way they formed and shaped this kid. Ugh. So let's get into it because yeah. holy crap. So he was born on February 29th, 1960. So he was a leap year baby. Interesting. Yeah. In El Paso, Texas, uh, his parents were me- Mexican immigrants. He was the youngest of five children. At 10 years old, he started smoking weed and hanging out with his cousin, Miguel. Miguel was a Vietnam War veteran, and he liked to show Richard, or Ricky as they called him when he was little, Mm-hmm. photographs of the women he abused, including some posing with a severed head. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I'm sorry, but that's a bad way to start off your life. Well, yeah. There's a trauma associated with that. 
Yeah. And also, obviously, he thought this uncle was cool, you know, yeah. emulating him, emulating giving a 10 year old marijuana. I mean, yeah. come on, man. That's. Yeah. And then showing him like this, you know, abuse porn kinds of stuff. Mm. Not cool. So yeah. then. One day, Miguel fatally shot his wife, Jesse in the face. While they were having a fight and Ramirez was present. Mm-hmm. So he, w- he witnessed that. Yeah. Which with that killing, <sighs> obviously he killed some people in Vietnam. You have to think that perhaps Miguel was the original serial killer in the family. Right. It, it really does make you wonder, doesn't it? Like what else did he do mm-hmm. while he was in Vietnam? And what are the other things that he did? Yeah. Because yeah, definitely not cool because miguel um was found not guilty of mm-hmm. her murder by reason of insanity yeah and he spent a little time in the stec- in the texas state mental hospital yeah but he really did not have consequences for what he did also no ding 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 they found him mentally ill yeah so this is not this is not good this is not boding well for richard ramirez little no. little ricky ramirez yeah so a few months after Miguel shoots his wife in the face, uh, Ricky goes to live with his sister, Ruth, and her husband, Roberto. Mm-hmm. Well, Roberto is a peeping Tom because mm-hmm. of course he is. Like, right? what the hell is the matter with these people? Yeah. And he used to take Ricky along with him to peep on people. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, WTF family, you know, right. like. You're just trying to build a serial killer out of this kid? Right. He just goes from one gross, dangerous person to another. Right. Right. Absolutely. So Ramirez moves to California in 1982. And this is where the majority of his crimes occur, as we know. And so he's 22 at the time when he moves to California. So what what is now known to be his very first victim, and this was not actually identified as being one of his victims until 2009 because of DNA. He wasn't originally thought to be the killer of this person. Yeah. But he killed uh, nine-year-old Mei Lung. Yeah. She was a Chinese-American girl. He murdered her in the basement of a hotel in San Francisco, and that, that's where he was living at the time. Mm-hmm. He raped her and stabbed her to death, and then he hung her body from a pipe. Now, he was not initially thought to be, he was never suspected of this crime until DNA proved it later. Sorry about my relentlessly barking dogs in the background. <laughs> they just won't quit. Something has really bothered them. Yeah. <laughs> so then we get to his very first murder in Los Angeles, and that's where most of his murders occurred. Well, most of his crimes occurred, I guess we should say, because he, he's, he's a serial murderer, but he's also a thief and a rapist. Yeah. And he, he has no, I think one of the reasons it, it took as long to catch him as it didn't, it really didn't take that long. It was less than a year, but I think that they struggled with him because he had really no MO. He was so chaotic Sometimes people died. Sometimes people didn't die. Sometimes people were robbed. Sometimes not. Sometimes there was a rape. Sometimes there wasn't. Like there was no pattern to follow. 
because he was so chaotic. Like his brain was, you know, out of control. Yeah. So, but yeah, no pattern, no typical pattern that law enforcement had seen, you know, they were looking for a pattern that they couldn't find because. Because there wasn't one. There wasn't one. Yeah. No. So his first murder in LA was Jenny Vinkow and she was 79. Mm-hmm. She was murdered in her apartment in Los Angeles and he cut her throat and he cut it so deep that he almost decapitated her. Mm-hmm. Um, they did find his fingerprint on a window screen and mm-hmm. that's how he got into her house. Uh, eventually they figured yeah. that out after they figured out who he was. Yeah. But then on March 17th in 1995, he attacks Maria Hernandez. She was 22. This was in California, Rosemead, California. Mm-hmm. He shot her in the face. So this is the other thing. Like, you know, some of his um, murders are stabbing. Some of them are shootings. Like, there's just yeah. no, there's no organization to this at all. No. Um, weirdly, she survives because a bullet that he shot at her ricocheted off a set of keys. Yeah. But he did shoot and kill uh, Dale Yoshi Okazaki, who was her roommate. Yeah. So an hour after that, he goes to Monterey Park and he shoots uh, Cy Leon Veronica Yu mm-hmm. twice. So he pulls her out of her car. He was kind of, he he did a lot of carjacking. Yeah. Sometimes successfully, sometimes not so successfully. Yeah. Ramirez was a, a kind of a basket case, really. And he didn't. He wasn't super good at what he did. I'll just say that. I mean, he killed a lot of people, but he frequently um, unsuccessfully tried things. Mm -hmm. Injured people, but yeah, didn't kill. Yeah. 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 So he pulled her out of her car and he um, shoots her. So then they start calling him the walk-in killer for walking into people's houses and killing Mm -hmm. them and the valley intruder. So he has a lot of different names. The Night Stalker came from the media and it's the one that's really stuck. Yeah. But for a while, as all of these murders were being committed, I don't feel like the police really actually knew that they, it was all one person. Yeah. Because there were so many different no. things happening in so many different places. Right. And they didn't have one thing that was tying them together. No. So uh, there's no connection between these victims at all. All of this crime happening that they're scrambling yeah. to keep up with and investigate, yeah. but they don't know no. that it's all one guy. Yeah. So on March 27th of 1985, uh, he's in Whittier, California. This is a house that he has burglarized in the past. So he did a lot of mm-hmm. stealing, never worked. And so oh, he did yeah. a lot of stealing to support himself. So he just stole and he burglarized this house before. Yeah. He breaks into it again and fatally shoots Vincent Charles Zazara, who was 64. Uh, his wife, Maxine, wakes up hearing the gunshot, of course. Mm-hmm. He beats her and searches that their house for valuables, looking for stuff he can steal. Mm-hmm. She escapes. He kind of ties her up and she escapes mm-hmm. and grabs a gun that they have. But unfortunately, it was not loaded. So he shot her three yeah. times excuse me, <coughs> and then stabbed her and gouged out her eyes. Right. Figure that out. What the hell? Right. And then puts the eyes in a jewelry box. Right, right. Like, holy crap, this dude. He does leave footprints in the flower beds. 
and he leaves bullets um, at the scene. So they do start to put some things together, like some bullets are starting to match like other bullets at other crimes. And so they're starting to think maybe this might be the same person. Then on May 14th in 1985, he breaks into Bill and Lillian Doy's home. This is in Monterey Park, California. So he shoots um, Mr. Doy, Bill, uh, in the in the face and beats him unconscious. And then he ties up Lillian and then he goes searching their home for valuables and then he rapes her. Yeah. But he doesn't kill her. Bill Doy dies yeah. at the hospital, but she right. she was sexually assaulted but not killed. Well, what the hell, Bill Doy? Shot in the face and doesn't die. Gets beat yeah. unconscious, still doesn't die, and dies at the hospital. Yeah. He's not been a tough guy, you know? Tough dude. Yeah. yeah. Very much so, but again, very weird. No, mm-hmm. Not following any kind of pattern at all. Yeah. <clears throat> then uh, on May 29th of 1985, he's driving a stolen car in uh Mon- monrovia california uh yeah he, he breaks into mabel and florence lang's home this is ma and letty mm-hmm. he attacks uh lang with a hammer he ties her up in the bedroom and then he ties up uh ma and um attacks her he uses this is so weird. I don't mean to laugh. It's just this guy is so nuts. Mm-hmm. He uses Ma Bell's lipstick to draw a pentagram on her body and the walls of both of their bedrooms after he rapes her. Now we know that he got kind of interested in Satanism as a kid. Mm-hmm. He was not interested in going to church at all. Got kind of interested mm-hmm. in Satanism. Although Satanism, let's be clear, doesn't actually mean anything. Yeah. And a pentagram is not a satanic symbol at all it is a pagan symbol but the world takes this stuff as like crazy satanic stuff even though it it wasn't when people are using a pentagram and calling it a satanic thing that's because they don't know what the hell they're talking about exactly yes and so we just want to be clear that that's how it was taken in the community but that's not what it is in 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 any in any way he was portraying it yeah yeah, definitely. That's what he wanted. He, he was, you know, trying to scare people, I think. So he did rape Ma Bell and mm-hmm. then he left the women tied up. They were found two days later um, <clears throat> alive, but Ma Bell did die of her injuries eventually. Yeah. So and they were sisters, then, right? These were sisters that were in their 80s. Yeah. 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 Elder, he attacked a lot of older people. He did. Um, but when you see pictures of him, we'll put a picture of him up because he was not a big tough dude at all. No. And he he was quite small, small and very gaunt. Like he wasn't gonna be mm-hmm. able to fight anybody very tough. And so he did go after elderly people. Yeah. I also because they had more money and things for him to steal, because yeah. part of his motivation was most definitely stuff uh, yeah left. yeah because he didn't have any other way of supporting himself so he mm-hmm. was kind of a one-stop shop criminal you know yeah he was breaking into murder and rape but he also wanted to see if they had any good stuff he could steal yeah. that was certainly part of it or just you uh, know put a set of eyeballs in the jewelry box you know yes to replace Whatever. the jewelry he took i who this guy i never yeah. notice yeah no never notice 
So then on May 30th, he moves on to Burbank, California. And this is the thing. I mean, he like goes from these from town to town, scaring the living shit out of people. He's hopscotching all over the place. He is. And so he's, he drives that stolen car that he's still got. And he breaks into the home of Carol Kyle. And he ties her and her 11 years old son up. And then he asks the son to point out where where's the good stuff that I can steal. Uh, he rapes Carol. And then he ties the son to her and flees. And they live. Yeah. Then on July 2nd in 1985, he moves on to Arcadia, California. He's still driving that same stolen car. And he goes to Mary Louise Cannon's home. He knocks her out with a lamp and stabs her with a knife from the kitchen. And she's found dead. So now lamp and knife are the, are the, um, weapons gosh i can't even think of the word this is so crazy it's scrambling my brain then on july 5th of 1985 he moves on to sierra madre california he attacks whitney bennett who was 16 with a tire iron while she was sleeping he then tries to strangle her with a telephone cord but apparently this the cord sparked like electrical sparks and so ramirez leaves so I guess this is weird. Okay. So the, the cord sparks. And at the same time, she starts to breathe. It's probably because he let go of the cord because it sparked and it scared right. him. Right. He believed that Jesus saved her. And so he left and she did survive. <laughs> wow. I mean, okay. he did have a very weird, uh, he hated Christianity. I guess yeah. his early days, his dad pushed Christianity really hard. And yes. It was a part of the abuse that he endured as a little, little kid was that the, uh, you know, hiding behind Christianity. And so that's part of his illness, whatever this is, was, you know, hating Christianity, Christians and being afraid of Jesus, obviously. Yeah, very clearly, very clearly. Yeah. So then on July 7th, 1985, he's still in Monterey. He breaks into the home of Joyce Lucille Nelson. He burgles her home, steals her stuff, and then he beats her to death and leaves a shoe print on her face. So then he breaks into another home, the home of Sophie Dickman. He handcuffs her, holds her at gunpoint, tries to rape her, but isn't successful. Interesting. And uh, he steals her jewelry. And then he makes her swear on Satan that he stole everything of value in her home. Yeah. So at this point, he has now beaten and or murdered around 12 to 13 people just this year. And this is starting in March and now it's July. I mean, it's just, it is a steady stream coming in. But that shoe print he left on her face, he'd left a few other shoe prints and they are finally tying together. This really is the same person. He's leaving shoe prints. It's the only prints he's leaving. He left yeah. that fingerprint at one of his very first murders, but after that, he had no. he left love prints. He got better, yeah. but yeah. the Good. shoe print and they had detectives had gone to literally gone with that shoe print to athletic shoe stores to try and figure out what makes this mark. 
Well, yeah. it's pretty fortuitous that that shoe uh, was a brand new shoe on the market that was quite rare. And very few people had it. And they knew that he was wearing black tennies from the reports of the people who had survived. And so they had right. it narrowed down to the exact shoe that he was wearing. And what's really crazy is only one pair of black shoes of that brand had been sold in Los Angeles. That is so crazy. I mean, it ended up being a dead end because they had no way of proving what store got that shoe or who bought it. And they couldn't really make that public without blowing their cover on the shoes. So they didn't want to say that. So it it didn't get them anywhere. But like four pairs of that shoe were sold in Arizona and one pair in Los Angeles. And that's it. Wow. Of the black. At least would really, you know, help them identify him eventually. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So... Then in July, so, I mean, he's just on a spree, basically. Every month there's something new. So Mm -hmm. he moves on to Glendale, California. He buys a machete, and now he's driving a different stolen vehicle because, of course, he bought a machete. I mean, what crazy person doesn't own a machete? Right. Um, He goes into Leela and Max and Nighting's home, and he kills them with a machete and the gun. Okay. Um, and, and And he burgles their home steals from them so then he drives to sun valley california breaks into the kovanath home and fatally shoots chanarong kovanath and he rapes and beats some kid kovanath sorry ties up their eight-year-old son and makes him point out the valuables in the home that's a real common thing that he does he doesn't kill the kids He ties him up and makes him show him where's all the good stuff to steal. Mm -hmm. Uh, He also makes her um, swear to Satan that she isn't hiding money. Mm -hmm. So you got the Satan swearing stuff again. But interestingly, yeah, he doesn't kill the children. He just ties them up and makes them help him steal from their house. Mm -hmm. So then on August 6th of 1985, he he breaks into the house of Chris and Virginia Peterson. And he shoots Virginia in the face, and then he shoots Chris in the neck, and then he tries to run from the scene. But Chris Peterson fights back. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ramirez does manage to to escape, but both people survive. Mm-hmm. Telling you, he's not super good at his job here. No, and it sounds like Chris put a fairly good hurt on him before he got away. He did, yeah. Really too bad he wasn't able to finish the job yeah. then and there. But of course he was, you know, also shot in the neck. So he, he was. So yeah, I, that may have been a bit of a hindrance, poor guy. We'll cut you some slack, Chris. We will definitely cut you some slack. So on August 8th of 1985, he moves on to Sakina and Elias Abawath. Mm-hmm. And he shoots Elias, uh, who was asleep. Then he handcuffs, beats, and rapes Sakina while, you know, of course, demanding, where's the jewelry? I need to, you know, make some money on this. And he ties up their three-year-old son, but again, doesn't hurt the kid. You know, one thing with this case that always jumps out at me is where was he fencing all that jewelry? You know, yeah. Somebody was buying all of these stolen goods from him. They were, but you know, this is the eighties. He's jumping cities. Yeah. There's no, you know, no one would get away with that now or it would no. be much harder to because mm-hmm. of the internet. But I, I feel like he, in his 
insanity was wise enough to know that if he kept moving towns and moving jurisdictions, they were going to have a much harder time finding him. Yeah. And I feel like that's what happened. You know, he would just go to a different town and fence the stuff before, you know, word got out and just managed to just stay ahead of everything there. Yep. Okay. So then on August 18th, uh, 1985, he moves on to the San Francisco Bay Area. So he's kind of used up L.A., really. He's been yeah. all over around in the Los Angeles area. So he breaks into the home of Peter and Barbara Pan, and he shoots Peter in the head. Then he beats and rapes Barbara before he fatally shoots her. Mm-hmm. And he uses lipstick to draw a pentagram and write Jack the Knife on a bedroom wall. Yeah. So that's, you know, an homage to Jack the Ripper. Yeah. And then, of course, he's drawing the pentagrams because Mm -hmm. he wants to freak people out and think this is a satanic thing. Mm -hmm. And yes, you did hear that correctly. Peter Pan. Dude broke into the home of Peter Pan, of all things. Yes, he did. I I remember the first time I heard that, I was like... Me too. I'm like, say what now? (laughs) That's not right. But yeah, that's kind of funny. Okay, so on August 25th of 1985, they finally identify Ramirez. So this is awesome. And I'm going to post the, uh, post the picture here Let me switch out our, our pictures so we can do this. Okay. So, uh, Ramirez drives to Mission Viejo, California. He's again driving a stolen car. It's an orange Toyota. Um, James Romero's James Romero Jr.'s 13 year old son hears Ramirez outside their home. So he's at their home. He's going to break in, you know, do his thing. Um, he wakes up his parents. The little boy wakes up his parents like, Hey, there's somebody out here. So Ramirez runs away, but the family did see the color and make of his car and part of the license plate number. Mm-hmm. So this is the first time anybody has seen what he's driving. Mm-hmm. So then he breaks into Bill Carnes and Inez Erickson's home and he shoots Carnes, Jesus, three times in the head. And he tells Erickson that he's the night stalker because they've started mm-hmm. started calling him the night stalker in the news and that she must swear to love Satan. Uh, he does rape her and then he tells her, tell them the night stalker was here. Yeah. So she later is able to give officials a description of him. And they're able to find that stolen orange Toyota. Yep. And there is a single fingerprint on the mirror and it matches Richard Ramirez. Yeah. Yeah. So officials release a, they have a drawing of him and then they get a mugshot because, you know, he's been in jail before Mm -hmm. because of course he has, before he started killing, he was in jail a whole bunch for, um, uh, theft theft yeah yeah so they release this and they say we know who you are now and soon everyone else will and they release a this mugshot of him from 1984 and yeah. that's that one i already showed i'll put it up again yeah so you can see the the drawing they had of him very close to the right. picture now one him. thing that we will say is that while this was the timeline of his all of the attacks and uh murders of the adults he also amidst all of this other shit uh had many instances of kidnapping children 
and taking them to abandoned places and sexually assaulting them and then letting them go. And we didn't include all of that on our timeline. Those were a lot of little kids. Uh, He didn't kill any of them. He would rape them and let them go in a lot of cases, making sure they got safely to a gas station or somewhere where they could, you know, be taken to safety. Yeah, he was like also happening amidst all of this. He was like a weirdly kind pedophile. I I don't know. I mean, psychologically, how do you you explain him? Well, that just takes me straight back to good old Uncle Miguel. Yeah. What do you want to bet that this boy was raped many times by family members? I I don't have any doubt with the family that he lived with. My God. Yeah, of course. He experienced sexual abuse and he Mm -hmm. continued to perpetrate it. But yeah, weirdly, in all of these situations, protected the lives of the children, even though they were tremendously traumatized, whether he assaulted them or they he killed their parents and tied them up and made them show mm-hmm. him where all the good stuff was to steal out of their house. He didn't kill any of them. No. And in fact, it was a six-year-old that helped convict him, that helped pick him up out of a lineup. Yeah. A six-year-old. Yeah. Astonishing. Crazy. Absolutely astonishing. Yeah. So then something really awesome happens. Yeah. This is probably this is probably my favorite part of this whole story. So in the midst of all of this when when they release his mugshot and everything, he isn't even in California. No. He had taken a bus to Tucson, Arizona to visit his brother. So you know, in the midst of his murder spree, he goes to visit family. Yeah. Again. As you do. Bizarre. Yeah. Yeah, as you do. So he's on his way back to California. So like he only, he was gone only one day, which I keep, Mm -hmm. I really wonder, like you ride a bus all the way to Tucson to see your brother for one day. One day. I know. Yeah. But he's on his way back and his mugshot is everywhere. It's all over the newspapers. It's all over the news. He gets back and he sees himself on a newspaper and Mm -hmm. freaks out. So he starts running because people, he walks into this bodega and they, some women in there start calling him killer. Like everybody immediately recognizes him. So he starts running because he knows they've called the cops and he's in trouble. Mm-hmm. He tries to carjack. Uh, he actually tries to carjack three different vehicles yeah. unsuccessfully, yeah. which that's hilarious. Yeah. He's uh, obviously frantic and not thinking. Yeah. Runs a bad job. Lanes of freeway. He's just running like he's on fire. Mm-hmm. but he tries to carjack another vehicle from a woman, but a group of people like in the neighborhood saw him do it and they pursue mm-hmm. him mm-hmm. and they smack him over the head and pin him down and hold him down. Yeah. Until the with a, come and get him. a metal bar, this guy <laughs> gives him a couple of good wax and then they hold him down. Yeah. yeah. And he's Which, awesome. <laughs> yeah. Totally awesome. You're not doing that in my neighborhood. Nope. No. Nope. We're done with this. Yep. Well, and you know, the cops had very unsuccessfully, you know, had been quite unsuccessful at finding him, but man, the people in this yeah. neighborhood, are like, we are done with this shit. Yeah. We're over, dude. <laughs> He's pretty lucky, honestly, that he um, made it to trial. Because <laughs> uh-huh. that mob, you know, might have just uh, taken yeah. him out. There were plenty that so, wanted to. There certainly were. So the police obviously showed up and took him into custody. 
And let's see, I'll show you that um, mug shot because he looks a little worse for wear in this one. Yeah. Whoops. <laughs> nope. Wrong one. Oh, technology. There, there we go. Yeah. So this is his mugshot after he's been pinned down and had the crap beat out of him by the people in the neighborhood where he tried mm -hmm. to carjack. So yeah. he um, sits in jail for a long time. He sits in jail until July of 1988 mm -hmm. before his trial begins. So, of course, you know, proving his. So complete, that is three years, just to be clear. Years. That is three years yeah. to the month that mm -hmm. he was arrested. Yeah, and obviously did not get bail and was not able to get out. But at his very first court appearance, he raised his hand with a pentagram drawn on it and yelled, Hail Satan. Mm -hmm. Because of course he did. Yeah. Uh, he also was overheard planning to shoot the prosecutor with a gun. Uh, some mm -hmm. guards at the jail heard that. Uh, and that he would had intended to smuggle a gun into the courtroom. And so they had to put a metal detector outside and search everybody really intensely because, you know, this is Richard Ramirez. You cannot screw with this. Yeah. He, he will do anything. Yep. Yep. Well, so they were protecting him really uh, yeah. intensely yeah. because, you know, everybody wanted him dead. Oh, yeah, the whole community did. And so they were really nervous about, yeah, him getting shot and killed before they could try him. Weirdly, during his trial, one of the jurors on his jury died. Mm -hmm. Her name was Phyllis Singletary. And there was this yep. big uproar that maybe he had somehow hired someone to kill her. Uh, turns out, no, uh, it was a murder-suicide. Well, yep. it was a murder by her boyfriend. He later committed suicide. But it was a weird... It was really a weird, weird coincidence. It was, especially because yeah. he had a really bizarre following of women. Oh, my God. That right. were absolutely in love with him. They were treating him like some kind of uh, pop culture star. Yeah. And yeah. And so there was question if, uh, you know, one of his uh, little followers had done this. But yeah, yeah. It turned out it was. It was domestic violence, but yeah, it was, but yeah. he was convicted on September 20th of 1989 mm -hmm. and he was convicted on all charges. So 13 counts of murder, five attempted murders, 11 sexual assaults and 14 burglaries. He yeah. was sentenced to death. He was given 19 life sentences and he was sentenced to death to die in uh, California. Mm -hmm. Uh <laughs> In in true psychopath fashion, when he was convicted, he said, big deal, death always went with the territory. See you in Disneyland. Yeah. I mean, for realsies, you guys. Uh, his trial was one of the most expensive trials in the history of the state of California. Yeah. At the time, it cost $1.8 million dollars. Which I guess in 2019 would have been like $3.7 million. Yeah. So huge, huge trial. But do you know what hybristophilia is? No. Hybristophilia is when a person experiences sexual arousal for someone who has been convicted or has committed heinous crimes. 
Well, there you go. There's and there was a lot of hyperstophilia around this dude. Mm -hmm. He had all these fans writing him and and visiting him starting in 1985. But this is long before he was ever convicted. It was just when Mm -hmm. he went to jail originally. Doreen Leoy wrote him 75 letters during the time that he was incarcerated. And in 1988, Ramirez proposed to her on October 3rd, 1996. They were married in California's San Quentin State Prison. Jesus Christ. What are you doing? (laughs) Holy shit. What are you doing? (laughs) I mean, come on. Can you imagine that everyone in her life was like, Doreen, what are you doing? You know, come on. So freaking bizarre. And at one point she said she would commit suicide when he was executed. Uh, but somehow she wised up. Get this. Okay. I guess everybody has their their wall. Uh, right? Yeah. Um, in 2009, when DNA confirmed that he was the man who committed the rape and murder of Mei Lung, mm-hmm. she decided she would leave him then. I, was I mean, like, it's not too hard to leave someone that's, you know, in prison for life awaiting murder or, you know, awaiting right. execution. I mean, life sentences wasn't enough for her, but one more murder. That was it. This yeah, was the final time me. What the hell, Doreen? Is that because he... What are you doing, that? Doreen? Uh, right. What did you just say? I missed that. I said, was that because he lied to her? He didn't uh, complain I about that one? Maybe I honestly, who the hell knows? Maybe she was cool with him because he'd never killed any children. But then when it turned out, he did. Then it was a thing. I, you know, I don't know. I, I, it's hard to believe that that's what put her over the edge and all the other stuff was okay. Yeah. Um, he did have some appeals in August uh, of 2006. That first round was unsuccessful. Yeah. Um, it uphold his conviction sentence sentence. Um, and they, he did, you know, try, he had some other appeals pending, mm-hmm. but then in 2013, by this time also, he was engaged to Christine Lee. <laughs> Christine, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> Christ's sake. Um, what the I'm, hell? Right. <laughs> Come on. So in 2013, he died of B cell leukemia. Yeah. So he did not even live out his entire, you know, they figured he wouldn't be executed for, you know, probably 10 or 15 more years after that because of he had appeals pending at the time that he died. Yeah. Becker got out. Yeah. Yeah, he did. I know. I'm sorry, but he got away with a lot of shit. Yeah. Certainly didn't sit in prison nearly as long as he should have. So wait, did the second wedding not happen? No, he, they were engaged. Oh. But he died. Thank God for you, Christine, you dumbass. He <laughs> died before you could marry him. Listen, if you're listening, you need therapy. Uh, she's probably engaged to Scott Peterson now. <laughs> probably but... at this point, right? Yeah. Oh, my hell. Uh, he had a long history of substance abuse. He also had hepatitis C and that kind of, he, so he was already not in good shape. I mean, you see the pictures of him. He looks like shit. Oh, right. It looks horrible. Yeah. Um, and so it didn't, it wasn't too surprising. He died at 53. 
and he had been on death row for 23 years by that point. Not long enough. No, no. You know, there was a lot of study of his mental health because, yeah, what the hell? Yeah. And one of the psychiatrists that studied him said that he was a made psychopath, not a born psychopath. And I, I can, you can definitely see how he was made to be a psychopath. Oh, yeah. Without yeah. glowing family history. Yeah. He also had quite a history of head injuries before the age of six years old. Oh. And he had developed temporal lobe epilepsy. And he was very aggressive and he had some problems with hypo hypersexuality which are all like temporal lobe damage problems that can happen from multiple head injuries so you know his environment and along with physical abuse really made him yeah um you know fortunately his spree lasted less than a year can you imagine if this yeah. had gone on for it, you know any longer my god and it was such a difficult back and forth between the detectives working the case mm-hmm. versus their bureaucratic uh, supervisors versus the mayors of and versus the press. Those four yeah. entities were not in sync. And no. there were lots of times where they felt like they were close to catching him. And then there would be a leak from the department to the press. Or, you know, at one point, Diane Feinstein was a mayor at that point, and she chose to release a bunch of information that uh, she wasn't authorized to release. And that, uh, or there was a miscommunication or something that uh, really, they felt like really endangered their case. There was a point where they thought they had him because he was going back to the same dentist. And they had officers at that dental office ready to grab him. And the powers that be decided that was too expensive and they'd put a a panic button into the dentist's office instead. So they pulled their people and installed a buzzer that very first day that their people weren't there. He showed up there to get the tooth finished because he had a badly infected tooth. Mm -hmm. The dentist's office is pushing the button over and over and over again. After this guy leaves, the dentist calls the detective and says, where the hell were you guys? He was here. And we kept pushing the button. Well, it malfunctioned. Yeah. That so would have ended it right then and there. It would have saved a bunch of lives. A whole it would bunch have. of things like that it, happened. Well, even when they released the sketch and when they released the, um, you know, his name, the detectives did not want that to happen. No. They wanted the opportunity to go get him before it all went public because, you know, but what they didn't know was that he was on that bus that he'd been to Tucson. They were watching the bus station because they were afraid he would run to it. Yeah. But he was actually riding into it. Like it was yeah. this crazy thing that yeah. happened. And ultimately they did catch him, but it was yeah. very lucky that the people but, in but, that community grabbed him. Right. And just well, that was a rough and tumble community, you know, yeah. and they were brave enough to grab the, you know, <laughs> The, the uh, metal pole and beat him over the head with it. Had he been yeah. in any other community, they might not have done that. But these guys went on. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of weird coincidences and miscommunications. Well, the other part mm-hmm. of it, I feel like, was just the fact that it was so many different cities and yeah. so many different police departments. And we've seen yeah. that a bunch. Mm-hmm. That that has gotten, we think, better 
the, the communication mm-hmm. between departments like that. Yeah. Because he was very smart about going from city to city to city. Mm-hmm. Now that would not matter. But yeah. at the time, things were not synced up. Like you said, like yeah. the, you know, where was he hawking all of his wares every time he stole stuff? Yeah. That would be, you know, immediately put out mm-hmm. to everybody if that were the case now. And he would he would have been caught that way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's criminals like these that uh, fine tune the criminal justice system, you know. For sure. Mm-hmm. And, For sure. and I would like to think in this case, it's one of those cases that helped encourage better interagency communication and sharing and, you know, assistance. Yeah, but it is frustrating. The detectives on this case, uh, you know, biggest case of their lives. And it was pretty, uh, pretty intense for them in having so many things out of their hands, you know, so many things they couldn't control when, uh, you know, if they ruled the world, they would have caught him a lot faster. If people would have listened to them and abided by their requests, they would have, but, you know, Mm -hmm. so often it comes down to money. And that stupid thing with the dentist's office was all about money. It was all about money. And that, that was horrifying because you, mm-hmm. you think about who maybe would have been saved had he not. Right. How many caught. lives were lost because they were saving a few bucks? Yeah. You know, of what the salary of two men that were standing there keeping an eye on things. I mean, it's yeah. just so dumb. So yeah. wrong. It is. It is. Well, as you said, our criminal justice system learns from cases like this. Yeah. And, and there have been a lot of changes that have happened in California due to Richard Ramirez. Yeah. Oh, but wow. You know, if you haven't seen the documentary on him, on uh, the Night Stalker on Netflix, go watch it. It's really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, we wanted to give you our take. Obviously this is just a, a shared um, presented case. This isn't a cold read. There's no reason to read this case. Uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's solved and you know, he's long dead now. Yep. But it's an interesting one. I think we learn a lot from, um, people like him, you know, mm-hmm. to hopefully prevent things like this in the future. Right. I think one of the biggest takeaways, whether we're talking about crime or just dealing with mentally ill people in regular life is you can't make sense out of nonsense. You know, so often I have clients that call me and go, All right, why is he doing this? Why is he acting this way? Well, you're trying to make sense out of a nonsensical person. You know, you're trying to make sense and this is exactly what happened with him. He got away with things for too long because we were trying to make sense out of it. We were trying to put him into the box of serial killers that we knew. But his chaos didn't sense. Yeah, there was no organizing no. it. And I think we have to realize that in, in interactions in regular life, you know, with various people, sometimes you can't make sense of it. Yeah. Your brain really, really wants to. That mm-hmm. our survival, you know wants to make sense of everything and put it in its category or in its box, but there's not always sense to be made. No. Well, it's, it's why we, you know, along with all of you listening and watching are so fascinated with true crime is we want to make sense of nonsense. Yeah. And, and you can't make sense of Richard Ramirez, except that learning about his childhood and growing up and the things that he was exposed to, I went, Oh yeah, there's the sense right there. Yeah. That tells the story. Yep. It does. It does. Absolutely. Well, guys, thank you for being here with us. You know, yeah. today is our, this is our Wednesday show, which means that tonight we have our 
Wednesday update, which yeah. is uh, at 7 p.m. Pacific. It's our live stream on YouTube. We'd love to have you join us. Mm-hmm. And then on Thursday night at 7 p.m. Pacific, no, Mountain. They're always Mountain. Why do I keep saying Pacific? 7 p.m. Mountain on Wednesday and 7 p.m. Mountain on Thursday. Thursday <laughs> is the Psychic Show. And yeah. so we'll be talking about some fun stuff and doing some readings there. So we have lots more good content coming for you. And of course, if you would like us to cover a case, please go to truecrimeparanormalpodcast.com. Scroll down to the bottom of the page. There's a little form to fill out that sends us a case suggestion. And don't worry, we get them all. I know we haven't done them all yet. It's going to take us a long time because we have times. <laughs> you guys send us lots of cases. And we love it. Please keep sending yeah. them. And we will keep working on doing them. But uh, definitely the Night Stalker was a request. So oh, there you go. Multiple requests. Yeah. Yes, surely was. Yep. All right. Well, you know it. We are True Crime Paranormal with the Psychic Sisters. Thanks for being here, everybody. Take care. If you're enjoying this podcast, don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. If you're watching us on YouTube, you can always like and subscribe there as well. We also love comments and reviews. True Crime Paranormal is hosted by Katie Weaver and Christy Brower and produced by Christy Brower. True Crime Paranormal is a short girl productions podcast.